Hello, and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chick, and I'm a research fellow at the Brunel Business School. In this podcast series, I will be exploring the history of a profession that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Miller. With years of experience working in-house for various organisations, including Visa and London Overground, Rachel has become a very prominent figure in internal comms. Her expertise as an IC consultant and her highly sought-after masterclasses have gained her a stellar reputation. Her upcoming book, Internal Communication Strategy, is greatly anticipated among IC practitioners. Join us as we explore Rachel's journey and reflect on what the history of IC can tell us about communication in today's world. First of all, it would be interesting for the listeners if you could just share how you, I suppose, you first discovered the world of internal comms and then actually got it involved in IC work, because obviously you're a big name in the field now, but uh, people might not know necessarily how you came into it. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me to, to join you. It's nice to have a conversation on all things internal comms related. I discovered internal communication like many professionals by accident. I know that we all seem to fall into internal comms, um, but I was working as a journalist. I started my career in 1999 and for four years was working on regional newspapers and then also doing some shifts on national newspapers. And I got to a point where I was really enjoying what I was doing, but I wanted to do something else. And I was looking at the job I was doing and the only real opportunity available to me was to be a sub editor, which wasn't really what I wanted to do. I knew I loved meeting people, writing, editing, interviewing people. So I put all of those search terms into recruitment uh, websites, which back in the day were read.co.uk and monster.co.uk. And then internal communication popped up and I thought, I don't know what that is. But all the things I love doing were all the skills that were needed to yeah. work in internal comms. So I discovered there was a whole world that I didn't know existed. And I yeah, stum- stumbled into internal comms and worked for Visteon, which is an automotive company, used to be part of Ford and they spun off. So I suddenly found myself in a team responsible for internal comms across Europe and South America, hard to reach audiences, lots of factories. So jumped in the deep end and Love it. Absolutely love internal communication. So discovered it in a very happy accident, but have spent the last 20 years of my career working in internal comms. I've not left yet. Yeah, uh, fantastic. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you started out, I guess, working in-house then, but now you're doing uh, consultancy work and communication training and the things you're well known for now. So uh, I suppose, how did you end up making that transition then? And what kind of prompted you to do that? So, yeah, I spent 10 years working in-house and after 10 years, I decided to move into consultancy. So I'm now at that strange point in my career where I've four years as a journalist, 10 years in house and 10 years out. But I still think of myself very much as an in-house person. And I think that's because I've spent the last 14 years blogging about what it's like to be an internal communicator. So I started to blog while I was in-house, sharing my reflections on the work that I was doing or what I was discovering about the world of internal comms. And people started to approach me and said, really like what you're writing 
I like how you think about internal comms. Can you come and do some work for us? And I couldn't because I was in-house. So after four years of that happening, I then had my daughter in 2012 and I decided to be brave and go back to all of those people who said, we'd love to work with you. So I registered all things I see in January 2013 and then went back to them and said, were you serious about wanting to work together? And thankfully they said yes. So that's how I kind of moved from in-house to consultancy was to give me an opportunity to work with more people and to put all of the things I love about internal comms and all of the problems I love solving, but to do that for more people and to help other people learn how to do that in their organisations. Yeah, and I guess you get a bit more of an overall sense then of internal comms when you see it functioning in a different way in lots of different places, I guess, whereas I guess you get used to one particular organisation style if you're working in-house a bit more, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think in my in-house career, I'd gone from the railway to pharmaceuticals to automotive to financial services. And the beautiful thing about internal communication is we like to think that every organisation is nuanced. And of course it is. But the fundamental principles of internal communication remain unchanged regardless of the organization that you're in so lots and lots of transferable skills there so regardless of your industry or sector as an internal communicator it's our business to get to know that business and get under the skin of that business so it doesn't really matter the type of organization you work in if you've got that curiosity about people and how organizations work then internal comms is the career for you for sure yeah, and I think that's kind of what's interesting as well with uh, the history project that we're doing is then it's the same, I suppose, as seeing lots of different organisations. Instead, we're just seeing them in the past, I suppose, as well. And uh, like I say, there's still some of the same uh, underlying principles that are the same, but all kind of like, yeah, been carried out in a different way. But you also see things that are the same. So that's why it's kind of quite interesting doing this. And uh, like a lot of people who uh, you kind of said you accidentally fell into internal comms, but now we're very passionate about it. And uh, that seems to be quite a common thing for a lot of people who've accidentally ended up in it. So what is it in particular about internal comms that excites you and what do you think makes it so valuable? I think it's seeing the impact of what you do. I think if I think about when I was a journalist, I would create content, I would write stories, but I never really knew what happened next. Once it had been published and it's out there, then I never knew what emotional connection or reaction people had to it. I didn't know how it impacted their day-to-day lives. And I think one of the most fulfilling things about internal communication is you see the impact of your work in real time. So you see a leader standing up at a town hall or being on, on screen at a town hall and communicating something that you've written for them or you've coached them to speak about something very tricky or sensitive like change for example and you can see in real time the impact and the reactions to those work those words and that work that you've done and that's incredibly fulfilling as an internal communicator because you can see day to day how incrementally you are helping to enhance the culture in organization or build trust for a leader so that never gets boring to me I love seeing that and I love particularly now when I'm training or mentoring or consulting with clients and helping set them up for success and helping those internal communicators who are in incredibly visible roles inside organizations. It's so important, I think, that we feel confident. And when we are advising our leaders to try something different and to say messaging in perhaps a different way or creating new content for them, seeing that impact and seeing those reactions is so valuable because it helps you learn and evolve as an internal communicator. And it helps your leaders, hopefully, um, trust you a bit more, perhaps. Yeah, oh, that's great. 
And, and I suppose, like I was saying, with the, uh, thinking about the history of internal comms, what's quite interesting there is then looking at some of those themes that turn up before. So uh, one of those which it might be interesting to talk about is how in company magazines in the past have found them uh, using those magazines to create what's called at the time an esprit de corps, which means basically a feeling of togetherness. And that, I guess, all kind of goes hand in hand for trying to create a positive working atmosphere. And of course, uh, this is kind of thinking back a century ago where you have people working in large groups in, in large factories quite often. So there's a large community there. And obviously everything's uh, quite different now, particularly in the last few years where remote working is uh, particularly taken off. So I was wondering, uh, thinking about that theme of trying to create an esprit de corps, that feeling of togetherness, uh, kind of, yeah, how does that kind of work in today's organisations of how things work now? And is it more of a challenge now, do you think? I think it is more of a challenge now. I think something that we've talked about a lot on in internal comms, particularly for, since 2020 in kind of COVID pandemic times, is about a sense of belonging. And I think for me, when thinking about a sense of togetherness or unity, it's that sense of belonging where the cultural identifiers haven't been in place for the past few years. So if you go to a certain place of work and you wear a certain uniform or you wear a lanyard and you meet your colleagues face to face, then actually as a result of the last few years, those cultural markers and identifiers might not be there. So you might be working from your spare bedroom and still want to feel a sense of connection and belonging with your with your colleagues. So I think it's made our jobs harder as internal communicators because those those things that we hook into as markers of culture haven't necessarily been there. So I've I've written about it quite a bit, bit on my blog and I featured a brilliant internal comms consultant called Isabel Collins who specializes in belonging and she said on on my blog that the sense of belonging was taken for granted until it was taken away and that really resonated with me because I think we you when you're planning internal communication and if you're trying to create that sense of community and cohesion amongst employees then those things that you rely on like the face-to-face communication that have been taken away in more recent years have made it more of a challenge but it's made it even more critical that we focus on well what does belonging mean what is our culture what is the way we do things around here and therefore how do we have to do things differently because of the way that the methods that we've normally relied on haven't been in place so I think belonging and unity and that sense of togetherness has always been important but I think particularly now because it's been harder it's more challenging for us and it's critical that we invest time and effort really in getting it right for our organizations because you can feel when it's not there you know attrition is high and and people are leaving organizations when they don't feel that sense of belonging and togetherness Hmm. yeah and I suppose with the remote working there's often a lot of focus on uh, the kind of technology side of it of how you uh, kind of keep people in contact in that kind of technological way but is there things as well I suppose maybe like the language you use that can uh, where you have to maybe use slightly different language now with trying to create that sense of a community with Uh, remote working I think it's about listening to your colleagues and and understanding where they're at so knowing the sentiment of the organization and and that's always been important for us but I think particularly now when you can't necessarily see a whole person when you're having conversations Mm -hmm. if you're if people have got cameras off for example if you're using technology what we've relied on is those visual cues for communication and the, the body language and how are people feeling and how how attentive are they for example in a town hall that's been a bit trickier when we're using technology, but that's why being tuned in and tapped in and listening to your organisation is really prevalent today. So having that sense of awareness, building those internal networks inside the organisation for us as internal communicators to really know 
what's top of mind for our people. We're very good at knowing what's top of mind for our leaders and how they feel about things, but actually what's important for our people, for our colleagues, and what's concerning them. So the language you're using needs to mirror the, the mindset of where your people are at, not just the mindset of where our leaders are at. So a part of our role, I think, is to, I, I describe the purpose of internal communication is not telling people what to do. It's to create a shared understanding and a shared meaning so our people can align their efforts to our company strategy. That shared understanding and meaning comes from language, comes from lots of things, but it particularly comes from the language and the tone that we're using internally. That's great. Yeah. And another theme that I guess we've kind of seen recurring across the entire century that we've been looking at is this kind of struggle that there is in internal comms between uh, people wanting it to represent, uh, like you're kind of saying, the voices of the employees and uh, certainly in the early stages of magazines, actually the early magazines were uh, quite often uh, produced by employees and then kind of the struggle against management who then want to use internal comms as uh, their kind of mouthpiece to uh, send out the messages that they want. And, and that's the thing we've seen kind of shifts with uh, magazines where they kind of started off being employee written and then as they get, became professionalised, they also uh, became a bit more the mouthpiece of the managers. And then obviously recently there's more of a shift back towards trying to have a two-way dialogue and uh, themes like employee voice are, are kind of been on the rise obviously in the last kind of a couple of decades so um yeah and I guess yeah kind of thinking about today's context then how can organizations ensure that uh internal comms it does kind of have a meaningful open communication and isn't just a top-down approach from managers oh that's a great question I love that I think there's always been a struggle in internal comms where I think to make stories feel relevant and to make them feel uh, interesting, could I say? Um, you have to be talking about more than just what's important to your leaders. They can't. You can't have your publications being seen as as corporate mouthpieces. And I, I'm fascinated by the work you're doing, and I've been absorbing everything you've been doing on your blog. It's fantastic. If I think about the reality for people of, of how we're working inside organisations, particularly with publications, we're trying to encourage peer to peer. We're trying to do the. We know from things like the Edelman Trust Barometer that peer to peer communication is the most powerful most credible most trusted because it's people like you are doing things like this and therefore it generates a sense of trust so when that that particular version of the barometer came out in 2013 lots of us hooked into that as a this is why we need to encourage peer-to-peer in our publications in our magazines because it's more trustworthy it's more credible it seemed to be uh, more reliable perhaps than coming from managers or coming from leaders and also it is more interesting because when when you listen to colleagues and you ask them, why do you read corporate publications? It's normally I flick through to see if I recognize anybody and then I might read it. If they just so happen that that's the way that you've got them interested in the content and then they read a story about the strategy from a leader, brilliant. But I think when you don't have people profiled and when you don't have faces that people recognize, then it does feel like a corporate mouthpiece and a bit of a... Um, it, it does feel very top down and it does feel very hierarchical. Whereas what we're trying to tap into as internal communicators is using storytelling and really good user generated content. So it's not just always about us writing the stories. It's asking people, share your views, get involved, have your say, doing, you know, 60 seconds with whoever. We, we try so many different mechanisms to try and encourage colleagues to show up, be visible inside our publications. So it does feel like this is a reflection of us as a whole, not just here are the managers and what they want you to hear. Yeah. And do you think in the 20 years that you've been working, there has been uh, progress on that front of 
moving towards being more of a two-way dialogue because obviously that's definitely something that is a battle that's won with internal communicators themselves but do you think it's a battle that's being won more widely as well then? I think we're getting there and I think I think technology has had a massive role to play in that I think before it was very much internal communicators in charge or control of all channels I think the rise of things like enterprise social networks particularly or um, forums and mechanisms yammer all sorts of things inside organizations where suddenly that share of voice is not just about internal communicators or leaders pushing out a one-way fixed broadcast monologue we've shifted into dialogue and we've encouraged people to share their views and and to create much more two-way conversational spaces that works really well in some organizations where the culture is genuinely we want to hear from you have your say work out loud in other organizations where it's very hierarchical you could have lots of systems and processes in place but if the culture isn't there where it feels um, a psychologically safe place where you can speak up you can bring yourself you know, your authentic self to work and have your voices heard then you could have all the tech but without that kind of permission internally or that culture that if I feel safe speaking up people aren't going to be using it so that goes hand in hand for me you could have the aspiration of I want to have a two-way conversation space and dialogue in the organization but if that's not reinforced with nurturing your people encouraging them recognizing them rewarding them for working out loud then it falls down there's a bit of an integrity gap there between what you say and, and what you do yeah oh, that's interesting in fact uh, that found with one of the magazines I think it was one I did talk about on the blog where I think it was around about 1930 there was uh, someone writing in there saying about how uh, kind of recommending different practices that you have in the workplace but saying that they're not sort of a magic bullet and that actually you need to have the right workplace atmosphere for these to actually work and yeah that's yeah and that and here we are nearly what 90 years on and that still that still hasn't changed so it's it? an underlying principle that's still kind of there really yeah absolutely yeah absolutely there we go. And obviously, uh, social media, like you say, has kind of played a bit of a role in, uh, I guess, that kind of two way dialogue. And um, I, I suppose it's kind of a, it's kind of a complicated development, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it creates new opportunities, uh, social media, but then it's perhaps also it can be a less controlled form of uh, of communication where there's just can be kind of no coherence, I guess, to the conversations that are going on. So it can maybe create uh, noise rather than communication. So, um, yeah, I was wondering what you kind of think on that front, whether social media has uh, kind of improved communication or whether it's created uh, more noise that uh, internal communicators then have to try and uh, navigate, or is it actually just the same challenges that they've always had, but in a different form, do you think? Well, I think if I think about noise, I think about the Shannon and Weaver model of communication and and the origin of the term noise, which was about how a telephone call was 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 made back in 1940, something 47, 49. I think testing my comms theory here, Joe. <laughs> um, and I think the originator of that term of noise was a cross line or a crackle on the line. So it was what's stopping um, information from happening and what's stopping communication from happening. And now we use noise to mean all sorts inside organizations i think social media has definitely had an impact to play whether that's external or internal i think because we've suddenly had more tools and more opportunity for our people to have their voices heard which is a good thing however when you're looking at an organization it means the level of noise and the volume of content has gone up inside our organizations because people are doing their own blogs or vlogs videos podcast whatever it is in inside our organization we've given our people the tools to be able to communicate and to communicate well so therefore when the noise has gone up what I'm always interested in is what's stopping communication from happening 
there's a, a quote by Sydney Harris, the journalist who said, information is giving out and communication is getting through. And for me, when I look at internal comms channels, normally we're so focused on the information given out as a traditional one-way broadcast methods. What we're seeing today, the communication getting through is the checking for understanding, does it make sense, testing, recall, with all the tools and technology that we've now got for two-way conversations to happen, the ingredients are there. But very often, we still find ourselves locked into information given out. I've sent an email. That doesn't mean that people have opened it. It doesn't mean that two-way conversations and communication has happened. So if there's a mindset shift to me about being really clear of you could have all of these weird and wonderful tools and all of the ability for your people to be able to communicate. But if you're not being clear on what are our sources of truth? What is it that we prioritize above all other channels? What do people rely on? That for me is how you answer questions like that. You know how to cut through the noise. Um, I have a very unscientific test that I'll share with you. I call it my snow test, which is imagine that it was snowing and you have people who are due to go to offices or, or, or factories. If there's really bad adverse weather, where do your people go to find out whether those sites are open or not? Is it your intranet? Is it their line manager? That tells me what their source of truth is. So as an internal communicator, we need to know what or who our people rely on as a source of truth, because they are the people that I would update first, or that's the channel that I would update first. So not very scientific, as I said, but that sense of how do we communicate with all of the social media potential noise of conversations going on? If you really get down to brass tacks as an internal communicator, it is our business to know our business. So we need to know how internal communication happens and what are the barriers and blockers? What's the noise that happens in the organisation that stops good quality communication? Mm, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, certainly. In fact, I've got precisely that snow example, I guess, of bad communication when I was in my first job in London, where I, on a snow day, I hadn't realised my underground line was the only one that was running. And I turned up at UCL, found the doors locked. And oh, no. <laughs> it never occurred to me that none of the others were running and <laughs> suddenly realised, yeah, that. You're the real life example there, Joe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, not just a, a metaphor for me. <laughs> there we go. And I guess another kind of um, obviously technological development that's getting talked about a lot now is uh, AI, I suppose, as well, and kind of what impact that might have on the role of the internal communicator. So it might be interesting uh, to kind of hear what you think on that, because obviously there's scope now to have things written by AI and sometimes people have difficulty telling the difference uh, and probably the more the technology improves the more it might be difficult to tell the difference but uh, do you think it's going to sort of be replacing internal communicators or is it going to be uh, just changing the nature of their role perhaps to uh, being more of an editor of uh, other things or actually is it are they, is AI never really going to be able to do the same things that internal communicators do? We are talking about this a lot right now. I feel like every conversation I'm having with clients at the moment or in my masterclasses, when I'm asking any other questions, anyone got anything they want to discuss, we are talking about AI. I think there's lots of rumblings that are going on. For me, I think as with anything, any any new shiny thing, I call it comms bling. When the next thing comes along, the next shiniest tool or gadget or widget, whatever it might be, then we all get dazzled by the blinginess of it and go, I must have it, I must have it. And the, the mindset always for me is, what's the business problem that we're trying to solve and therefore what makes this new whatever it is um right for us to be able to solve that problem i think ai creates incredible opportunities for professional communicators in ways that we don't understand yet so from the very light touch 
forays that we're all trying at the moment, you know, even going to chat GPT and typing in what is internal communication, I would probably only have changed two or three words in what came back. It came back super quickly and was pretty spot on, actually. So when I'm looking at what's out there and looking at um, the tools available to us and resources available, I'm mindful of the ethics of lots of those things. So I had a conversation with a client a couple of weeks ago and I was saying, theoretically, imagine if you're trying to find a photograph of your CEO visiting a factory floor and you know that didn't actually happen. Theoretically, if you have a photo of them and a photo of your factory floor, one could make it look like they went to do a visit there. Now, ethically, every single bone in my body is aching at the, <laughs> the thought of that. But the technology exists to be able to do that. So being mindful of what you can create and the situations you can create, I think is really important to be mindful of what information are you putting into these new tools, these new technology. There's lots of commercially sensitive things that we work on as internal communicators. So you wouldn't want to put them into publicly you know, open source uh, tools and technology it's really important that we're mindful as we always are about sensitivities and data that we're sharing I think it can probably save some time for us it can probably come up with headlines or it can probably help us come up with different ways of, of writing stories sure that that will why not why not see if we can outsource some of the day-to-day -day tasks and things that machines could do but what's missing for me is the humanity there. It's the empathy, it's the compassion, it's the skill of knowing the culture of your organization, knowing what tone works. Yes, a piece of content could have been written by, by something else, but actually that skill of knowing what's right for your organization and where your people are at and the sentiment, I don't think a machine can do that in the same way as an internal communicator. So I think we can work together. I think there's room for everybody. So my advice would be to experiment, try things out, see what works but be really mindful of the the ethics I think of of using um, things like this and be mindful of accuracy because everything I've seen has not been accurate enough yet because it's learning you know it's, it's machine learning so it's learning yeah and that's it. I think people also need to be aware of what it actually does it's designed to be able to mimic I guess human speech is not actually designed to provide accurate information and I think people yeah. look at that a bit and that's why it, sometimes if it doesn't know something it'll uh yeah I mean I know a few people like that as well though where if they don't know something they'll fill in with something made up but 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 we're trying to be in source of truth you know I think that's important I think we pride ourselves on credible accurate reliable information to help people do their jobs so why would you outsource that I think it's good to get maybe some thinking there or to save some time perhaps but I would then want to spend time checking everything and making sure that it was credible and accurate. So I think one of the skills on the um, IOIC profession map is around curiosity. We need to be curious as internal communicators. So I would apply that to check these things out and, and talk to your colleagues, talk to your peers, talk to people in your network. What are they doing? How are they applying AI or, or VR even for their internal communication? Because there's so much that we don't know about it yet. So I'm hugely excited to see what's ahead and what's possible so I think just find your way experiment uh, and figure out what it means for your organization I would say yeah and of course we were talking right at the start of this about the, creating that esprit de corps and that sense of community and of course that's something that could easily get lost if people know that what they're reading hasn't actually been written by a person then that does take yeah. away as well as another I guess consideration as well mm -hmm. Um, so one thing we've kind of talked about in the past as well is about the kind of status of uh, internal communication within organisations. 
And that's one thing I was wondering is whether you've noticed any change during the 20 years that you've been working in IC in terms of how business leaders value uh, IC within their organisations? I would love to tell you, Joe, that everything is brilliant and shiny and perfect. I would love to tell you that everyone sees the value of us. And I think for some organisations, that's definitely true. I think what I've seen personally is a shift from internal communication being seen as a nice to have to being a need to have. And I think part of that is our work in crisis situations. I think the pandemic particularly made a lot of lots of organisations really take notice and value their internal communication, some for the very first time. So certainly all of the organisations that I was supporting during the pandemic were it's like our time is now, but we've never been more reactive. We've never been more tactical. So what I'm finding now and lots of teams that I'm advising now have been working in a very responsive way to their organisations. We've been trusted advisors. We've got seats at the table and we've been there, particularly in COVID times, to advise our boards and our senior leaders. But that's been a very reactive way because of the crisis and the, the ongoing pandemic, the, the perma crisis that, that we've been in. Now, lots of teams are trying to re-establish who they are in the eyes of their business and their leaders and stakeholders because we're known as being that reactive tactical team and that's teams I've worked with who originally were very strategic working very proactively very planned very measured had to be in firefighting mode because we all have had to be so I think the value and the recognition about the importance of internal communication is growing um, I think I'm finding when I meet people for the first time and they say, well, what do you do? I'm explaining less what I do because people are starting to be more aware of what internal communication is. Whereas when I became an internal communicator in 2003, I was constantly explaining, not least to my family. Um, what are you doing? My family will teach us. What are you doing? How, how, what is this? Is this not journalism? So you, you end up, I think, as an internal communicator, trying to prove the value of what you're doing in the organisation that you're working in. And you do that by working well with your leaders, helping them realise that this isn't a nice to have. This is a need to have. We're a, a business function because we enable the business to function. So it's crucial, I think, that as internal communicators, we're talking the right language. We're measuring outcomes, not just output. We are focusing on helping our leaders understand and value why internal communication is important. Yeah, and I guess there's also kind of steps towards trying to create the more professional image, I guess, kind of that happening within it as well with uh, qualifications and things like that. And do you think that some of the efforts within IC by things like the IOIC are kind of helping to create that more professional image then? I do. I think that's really important. I did the IOIC master's course as it is now. I did it back in 2008-9 when it was the postgrad through Kingston and it's now through Solent University. And it's such an important thing, I think, to invest in your professional development. We go a lot, certainly for, until I did the course, I was going on gut feel and instinct and being able to write a good story and being able to really understand people and therefore get to know organisations. But having that awareness of comms theory and having that really academic rigour to your work, I think is hugely important. And very often because internal communication isn't necessarily a career of choice at university level, particularly for people my age who've been, been, been around for a while, if we didn't study communication at university, I didn't even go to university, I went straight from school to being a journalist. So having that academic rigour that underpins what you do is really important and it's never too late to learn that. I think it's not about having a model that you kind of get out and you talk to a stakeholder with, but knowing 
how communication happens, looking at people like the Institute of Internal Communication or Dr. Kevin Ruck and the brilliant work that he's doing with PR Academy and the CIPR qualifications. There's so many good people out there who are helping upskill internal communicators that having the confidence, I think, to have difficult conversations with people underpinned by knowing this is best practice, this is theory, helps elevate you as an internal communicator. It certainly boosted my confidence knowing this isn't just gut feel. I actually know why I'm recommending certain things and I know models and I know theories as well that if challenged, I could present. I would definitely recommend internal communicators to invest time in their professional development because it it does build your confidence and it it demonstrates that we are a profession this isn't just you know it's not there is an art to internal comms and but there's also a science too yeah and of course you've got a book coming out hopefully next year called internal communication strategy so might you be able to tell listeners a bit uh, about uh, what that book will have in it and what the themes are sure well there's an expert view written by yourself and your and your your new colleagues so Yes, I'm looking forward to, to publishing the books. It's being published by Kogan Page and due to be released in May 2024. And the idea of the book is the book that I wish existed when I discovered internal communication. And it's also the book I wish existed when I was then working in a senior role in internal comms and responsible for internal communication strategy. So it's it's hinged on the Miller model, which is my framework for strategy creation. So it's your mindset, insights, logistics, leadership, evaluation, revision. So it's a, a technique that I've been using for a number of years, believe in it so much I put my name to it and I, I use it with clients to help them create internal communication strategies. So having that planned, rigorous approach to this is how we want to be in, inside our organisation when it comes to internal comms. This is the vision that we have for the way we want to communicate and then the steps you need to go through to design, develop and then transform your organisational communication. So Oh, I'm loving it. I'm loving the book writing process. It's an opportunity to really get all of the advice and guidance out and, and down in, in paper form, really, to for internal communicators to have to hand when you are in that really visible role or in, you're in a team of one and you're stuck. My intention for the book is that it's a go-to resource where you can pick it up and you can get to the relevant point in the book and, and get help and then go back into your being your super visible role and impress whoever you need to impress inside your organization with some advice and guidance there from people like yourself and the other people that I've featured as expert views in the book so it's 80,000 words I'm 55,000 words in so far yeah. so it's uh it's getting there <laughs> there we go and I guess the last thing although this is the history of internal comms podcast I always like to finish by thinking about the future of it as well so what kind of emerging trends and strategies do you think are going to be the ones that people need to be most mindful of in uh, internal comms in the upcoming years? So I think we've we've discussed AI already, and I feel like you can't think about the future without talking about AI. But whenever I'm asked this question, and whenever I've been asked it for the last 10 years, I always talk about, I think there's a perception, I'm going to say robots, but I always talk about face-to-face, -face because I think there's such an art to face-to-face -face communication that We've really struggled in recent years when it was taken away during the pandemic, particularly. We've tried to recreate it through technology, but you really can't beat it. So I think any discussion about the future for me is how do we really make sure that we preserve face-to-face -face communication? Because that cannot be beaten. So whether you're planning as a comm strategy or you're planning a new set of channels, whatever you're planning, I think make sure you're building in face-to-face -face communication because 
it is so valuable and so important and it can't be replicated by anything else. Mm. A lot of it you feel isn't necessarily about the new technology, but it's about keeping what we've already got without and not letting the new technology stop it, really. I think yeah. so. I think you can you can enhance what we're doing by using technology. But I think we missed face to face communication and getting people together in person. I think we've always known it's important, but recent years have really underpinned that for me, that it's absolutely critical. You can't beat being together face to face. On that note, we are finishing today's podcast. I'd like to give my thanks to Rachel Miller for joining us today and sharing her invaluable knowledge and experiences in the realm of internal communication. Tune in again next month when Alex Kapud, a cultural anthropologist at the business consultancy Scholar Abbott, will be talking about his insights on how the study of human behaviour and interaction can improve workplace communication. In the meantime, be sure to visit our website www.historyofinternalcoms.org where you can find historical articles and our latest blog post which looks at the use of the rhetoric of the family in communication in the early 20th century. Thank you for listening and I look forward to you joining us again in August.